Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, it's Brad Listy. Happy holidays. As I do every year around this time, I want to take a moment to plug the ASPCA, the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. If you're looking for a good cause to support this holiday season, go to ASPCA.org, ASPCA.org and make a donation. Help a dog or a cat, a puppy or a kitten get out of a bad situation. I can't think of a better cause to support. Human beings, we have our problems. Let's try to help other species affected by our problems. All right. Should we get on with the show? Let's do the show. I think we should do the show. Thank you. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right, 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 right. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Other People Podcast, a weekly program featuring in-depth interviews with today's leading writers. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California. Thank you for listening. It's good to be with you. I have a very special edition of the program today. Uh, as I just said, you know, usually I'm talking to writers explicitly on this program. Today, I have the Oracle of Los Angeles on the program. She is a writer, uh, but she is much more than that. She's an artist. She's a witch. She's a healer. She ha- has a bi-monthly uh, radio show on K-Chung Radio. She teaches the Magical Praxis Monthly Mystery School here in L.A. and uh, performs private rites of healing and empowerment at her magical studio in West Adams. She's an oracle. She's a witch. She's a tarot reader. Did I pronounce that correctly? Tarot reader. She's a spellcaster. She's an energy healer. She's an intuitive medium, a shamanic practitioner, and a magical life coach. And I can't think of a better time... Uh, to have her on the program than right here in the middle of the holiday season. I should add that uh, she has been recommended to me by more than one guest that I have had on this program. They've said, hey, you know, you need to have Amanda on the show. She's great. Uh, And that's her name. She's Amanda Yates Garcia, also known as the Oracle of Los Angeles. So I emailed her. I reached out. I said, hey, would you like to come over and talk to me? She was kind enough to do so. And I had a really good time with her. I could have talked to her longer. One of those guests. But uh, we spent about an hour together. 
and uh, I think you're going to enjoy this. So without any further ado, here she is, folks. This is Amanda Yates Garcia, uh, a.k.a. the Oracle of Los Angeles. I'm Amanda Yates Garcia, Oracle of Los Angeles, and I have a practice as a witch, a healer, an artist. I, f- I see them all as folded into one another. You consider yourself a witch? Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, that's my practice. What is a witch? Yeah, good question. What is a witch? Well, I think on a really basic level, one of the reasons why I call myself a witch is because I do the things that witches do. For instance, I cast spells and I make, I I do incantations and invocations and use healing herbs. and, And you believe this stuff works? Yeah, absolutely. I see it in my, I mean, I see it work out all the time. But, you know, also with a caveat that as, for instance, love works different, differently than it does in the movies, right? Like we have this idea of what love is based, you know, as children, as we're growing up and we sort of learn about what love is from our environment and from popular culture. And then when we go grow up to actually do it ourselves, we realize that it, it, it isn't exactly the way that you see it in the movies. It's kind of a truncated version And similarly, I think most people's idea of what witchcraft is, is very much informed by popular culture. And so they're going to have expectations about what that means drawn from popular culture. Like for instance, Harry Potter or teen witch, teen witch or the craft. (laughs) One of my favorite movies as a child was teen witch. (laughs) Yeah. Teen witch. Yeah. I don't even know if I've seen teen witch. Isn't that a TV show? It might be. I think they did a spinoff, but the original is a very like very B B movie. And there's just, there's a rap song in it. I think called top bat. You just have to see it. It's so bad that it's great. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I sometimes find those kinds of things a little bit aggravating. I actually have people ask me sometimes cause I do public performances. I came to my practice sort of as an artist, um, or my practice as a witch an Oracle as an artist. Although I, I grew up practicing witchcraft, my mother, was a witch and she she passed it down it's the family it business it is well yeah exactly so how do you find out when you're a kid that you did your mom sit you down one day and she's like honey i'm a witch well uh, no because you know it actually there's sort of historical precedent for it and she was also a part of a unitarian church and during that time in the 70s and 80s there was a real resurgence of this sort of feminist religious practice um which was aligned with the idea of witchcraft. They called themselves witches and they would say, you know, this is the oldest religion. I have a kind of differing opinion about that. I don't think that we can say really that the same, that the practices that witches use now are the same as the practices that were being used like thousands of years ago, but there are certainly a lot of similarities. I mean, just like Christianity as it's practiced now probably bears very little resemblance to what was going on 2000 years ago in Israel or whatever. I'm reading about that right now. Yeah. I mean, it's completely different. Like there, for for instance, if you read original texts that were written, you know, simultaneously to the time of Christ, then, you know, there was all sorts of astrology and paganism and many different gods. There were lots of healers and magicians and all that kind of stuff. Astrologers. Yeah, exactly. And using the use of talismans and very like psychedelic mystical experiences that they write about quite candidly. Like for instance, in the Pista Sophia is what I'm speaking about specifically, uh, 
Uh, what is that? Not, it's a Gnostic text oh, from right. the time of Christ. Um, they were using psychedelics back then? I don't think it was psychedelic. Was Jesus tripping? I mean, it sounded, I mean, based <laughs> on this text, it sounds like he was. It yeah. talks about, I mean, the text is really um, about Mary Magdalene and his relationship with Mary Magdalene. And then it sort of skips around to tell the story of Sophia, which is, which is a sort of goddess figure within early Christianity of the, the Holy Spirit, essentially. Wisdom, the anima mundi. Anyway... So he in in this text, like Jesus talks about ascending up into heaven and having it crack open and the things that happen when he's up there. And he talks a lot about how like triangles and circles and things turning to the left and the right, which kind of doesn't make a lot of sense unless you kind of consider it astrologically where there are trines and um, other geometric shapes and things like that. I don't know a lot about astrology. Oh yeah, well yeah. that's why I have you here. Yeah, you here I am. <laughs> Let me break it down. Yeah, please. Uh, so okay, so you're young. Your mom's a witch. Yeah, she starts to teach you stuff. Mm-hmm. What does she? What does she teach you first? Well, she, when I was a child, was doing this thing called Cups for the Queen of Heaven, which was about women's spirituality and earth-based spirituality th- throughout history, things that have been really been written out of, uh, our historical understanding of theology, I guess. And so I learned a lot about different goddesses and different ways of approaching a spiritual practice than what you might learn at Sunday school, for instance, as a Christian or a Catholic or a Muslim or a Jew. It's funny too. Cause, and I just want to interject here because when you talk about the feminine, like there, there is like a masculinization of religion mm-hmm. that is relatively recent in terms of the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Like over the millennia. Like, correct? Like, why, why weren't like goddesses more common? Certainly. It in, seems in like, ancient you religions know, go or go back ahead. 3,000 years. Okay. Three, I, just, I, yeah. I, th- I seem to remember reading that somewhere. And that with like the, when you start to masculinize things, um, things have a way of, of going south or at least going sideways. <laughs> Yeah, it does, uh, there's not a great historical precedent for worshiping the masculine above the feminine and, ha- and having a good result That's for what, everyone. Yeah, like it does certainly. We seem need more. Suffering. We need more witches. Yeah, we need more witches. That's my that's my mission in life is to kind of create an army of witches. So okay, so your mom uh, is working in this vein. Yeah, you're aware of it. Yes. So for instance, so I was learning a lot about mythology and, um, feminist practices within that. And then there are other things that are more practical. For instance, like I was learning tarot, like she taught me when I was 12, I made my own set of runes when I was, yeah, about that same age. When I turned 13, you know, sort of a coming of age ceremony, um, we did a ceremony where you tie a red cord between my wrist and her wrist, and then all these women and their daughters came on where, the full where, moon. Where were you raised? Santa Barbara. Oh, my God. Perfect. Yeah, right? <laughs> this, this wasn't... Because ha- I'm from the Midwest. I was like, this wasn't happening in Milwaukee, I don't think. Uh, right. I mean, I'm not sure, but I'm very Californian. My family on both sides has been here for seven generations, so... Yeah, very much speaking from the sort of 
iconoclastic, like unconventional Californian position, I would say. Yeah. But Santa Barbara is like the most beautiful place in the country. I think it's so gorgeous. Yeah, it really is. I love very it up beautiful. there. Yeah. Do you ever, do you ever miss it? I mean, I guess you get to go back, right? Yeah. I don't go back very often. She doesn't live there anymore. She lives in, uh, near San Luis Obispo. Uh, my brother still lives there. I, I love going back there because it is so beautiful, but it's very bougie now. And yeah. it, it was always very expensive. Like, when I, I moved away when I was 18, I had moved out of the house early when I was 17, and I was living, this was in the 90s, I was living in this shack, a shed in someone's yard. Um, like $1,800 a month? No, I was paying, I was paying $450 a <laughs> okay, month, good. but there wasn't um, like electricity, there wasn't a bathroom, like I... The, there were literally vines growing through the wall. And then I went up to visit a friend in San Francisco. This was the year before dot, dot com hit. And I moved in with my friend in this place in the Western edition in San Francisco. And it was, for, it was $50 less than it was to live in a shed in someone's yard Jesus. in Santa Barbara. Yeah. I know that's kind of how it was. I remember that was like the way that it was in, in like really nice ski towns in Colorado. Like after I got out of college, I looked at that and there, like, there was just nothing. You would have to live in basically like a, a shack. Yeah. Like you, I literally did live in a shack because I just, you know, I was working at a coffee shop. That's I not, couldn't yeah. afford it. Yeah. That was you it. Know? And then when I moved to San Francisco, I had an amazing place with huge, you know, high ceilings and, um, big bay windows and you know it was in a an edwardian house in the western edition it was really gorgeous but then you couldn't get that today no oh my gosh because dot com hit while i was living there and when i moved out of that place people started calling at five in the morning we'd put an ad in the paper and overnight it went up to twelve fifty. jesus so it tripled yeah in like overnight that's crazy. It was so crazy. And then all these guys who were like being, they were like successful in the business and the dot com business. And they were all really young. They were like 23. Yeah. And so they would like buy these beautiful old mansions and paint them black and put their gym equipment <laughs> in it. And, oh God. It, and, and, well, something about that whole scene skews me out. I, I, know, I was talking about really this weird. on a, on a recent episode. I was just like, I don't want to paint with a broad brush. I don't want to prejudge people. I don't want to be sour grapes. Like a lot of these people are making uh, a positive impact on the world somehow, or they're, they're, I don't want to resent their success. Right. But at the same time, it's like that, that bro culture, bro, yeah. bro tech freaks me out a little bit. Yeah. I think it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier. Like anytime there's an imbalance of like gender equity, it kind of yields pretty lame stuff. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I, I, think, mean, I think that might be sort of at the core of it. And I think that's at the core. Okay. Now I'm really going to be reaching. So you just got to bear with me. Okay. But if we're talking about gender imbalance, um, and you're talking about like bro culture run amok, mm. like if you think about, um, you know, ISIS, you basically have all these bros who can't get laid, who don't know how to behave around women. Don't know, you know what I'm saying? Don't know how to talk to women. Don't know mm -hmm. how to relate to women. Mm -hmm. It's a very bro-centric culture. And then they basically resort out of this frustration, I think, into like enslaving women. Mm -hmm. And then you have tech bros in San Francisco. This <laughs> is an unfair parallel. But, you know, a lot of these guys, uh, it's like, you know, it's, it's kind of the, the cliche or the caricature of them. But there's a lot of nerdy guys who wind up uh, in computers or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly they've got a bunch of money. 
they've got, a, you know, they've got access to like supplements and like a, a home gym and money, you know, and they're, they're rich and they're driving a, like a not, you know, Porsche. And then they have women potentially. Yeah. Kind of. That, that's a big reach. I'm not sure that they, they have women in the way that they want to have women. I, I think don't think ISIS we, does either. No. <laughs> that's the whole point. Yeah. It's just, it just seems like things it's are never satisfying. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. I mean, in theory, the idea that a woman would be subjugated to you or that she would be obligated to love you or something would be satisfying. Like I can make this thing that I want that, you know, arouses me, that seems to, you know, that compels me, like sort of dance to my tune and do the thing that I want it to do. And yet, you know, women have subjectivity, so they're not going to do that. Like they're never going to love you if you treat them like that. Like they'll be beholden to you and they'll, you know, because of the women way that, you know, patriarchy has affected women's minds. My friend and I were just talking about this actually about, um, that show. I love Dick on Amazon, the, the, the is it pilots. Based, is, it, is it based on the Chris Krause? Book? Yeah, it's based on the Chris Krause book. And we were talking about the Dick Hebditch character in that, pilot and in the book and how he's being such a dick like he's really being an asshole this mansplainer and yet the chris Krause character like still wants his approval and still wants to fuck him basically and yet she knows that he's an asshole simultaneously so i think you know for women that's a real bummer especially you know for heterosexual women is that you can sort of see the way that like men are these sort of flawed characters that you still want their approval and their acceptance and their love. But I also think the same is true for men in our culture. You know, I feel like a lot of men really want to connect. They want intimacy. Like they, they, they want that approval too. They, they want, you know, meaningful connections, meaningful relationships with their peers, with other men, with women. They, feel a lot of pressure to be this sort of like Superman figure. And yet there's not really a way for them to have those things if they behave according to the sort of dominant paradigm of masculinity. And it's on that way, patriarchy is really bad for men too. And also, if you think about like who dies because of patriarchy, well, a lot of women get abused and beaten and killed. But if you think about war, for instance, yeah, all that blood spilled is men's blood, right? You know, and they're having they're for ha- they have to run into bullets on behalf of who? People like Donald Trump, right? Like that's not a good deal for them. Like they have other stuff they want to do, like with their lives and enjoy and take yeah. pleasure in. So, well, there is. I mean, I think there is like this whole like life hack culture, TED Talk culture. Um, not that all TED Talk. I mean, there's a lot of good to be gleaned from TED Talks. But it is sort of like a, uh, like a secular church for a certain set of people in our culture. And, or at least that's the way that I perceive it. I mean, even the setup is like a mega church, you know, where you have the Madonna microphone mm-hmm. and like the stadium seating and, you know, the finger steeples and like the, you know, all that kind of stuff. And um, I feel like the whole life hack thing sort of speaks to what you, what you were just talking about with regard to men feeling pressure to be Superman. Mm. It's like, I've got to have like 2% body fat and sleep three hours a night and like be an ultra marathoner and like be an entrepreneur. And like, that's kind of like what this is. And that's the, there's like this main, this mania of competition and self-improvement that on the outside, I think can seem like really cool. Like, oh wow, we're perfecting ourselves. We're moving the needle. We're moving humanity forward. But on the other side of it, I sometimes, and maybe this is like the darker side of me. I'm like, they're just trying to fill a big hole like this constant 
improvement, achievement, like treadmill that they're on. Like, are you really happy? Like I sense, I sense sadness in it. Yeah. I think you make a really great point. And I, I think it speaks to our need for spiritual purpose and meaning in general that is not fulfilled and that we're kind of trying to find. I had a similar experience, uh, I think about a year ago when I went to this writer's party for t- TV writers. Uh, I'm not a TV writer, but so they're not all, yet. Not you, live, yet. You, you live in LA. Eventually it'll happen. <laughs> Eventually. I've worked on scripts, but <laughs> yeah, I've been that person at a coffee shop, but yeah. So there were a lot of really successful writers there and people from television, comedy. It was like a comedy party and you know, they had money. It was a beautiful house. You know, they were all successful. And yet I looked around the room and the vibe was so neurotic and stressed and everybody was trying to figure out where they were like on the totem pole, like who they were talking to and what they could get from that person and whether or not they were higher up on the total pole than the people below, which was, it was very refreshing and kind of vindicating for me because I, I went to grad school in film and video at Cal arts and I never, I saw myself always as an artist rather than as like working my way into the film industry. But, but nevertheless, yeah, like a fine I, artist. Yeah. A fine artist. So I, I, I never, I, so, but I have written scripts and pilots or whatever, and sort of maybe toyed with that idea. And I think like 10 years ago, being at that party would have been very intimidating for me because there are all these people who kind of seem to have like name people. Yeah. Like name people. Like who? Can you name people? Can you name names? No, I'm not going to name names because I feel like that, you know, like I, I feel like that might be rude, but like people off successful shows like 30 rock, for instance. Okay. Um, or writers for shows like that, you know? Um, and it it was, it was just very illuminating to see how like, these are the people everybody in America kind of thinks like, Oh, that's the life. And they were driving up in their, you know, Tesla's in their hot clothes. By the way, the Tesla to me as a status symbol in, especially in places like Los Angeles and San Francisco, like to me, it's like the the Prius of the ultra achiever. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like when you're driving a Tesla, it's like, I have the finest things and I'm like socially conscious at a level that would blow your mind. Like, yeah, I don't know. Whenever I see someone get a Tesla and it's great, it's a nice car. It's an amazing car. But it's I'm like a, being in a spaceship. I'm like such a dick. I'm just like, Oh, you got it. You know, I always like sort of eye roll at the Tesla. Yeah. I mean, I don't mind Teslas. I just think it's really funny when we have all these things and yet we're still you know, not really that happy. Yeah. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns, depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. 
Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So before we go any further, because I don't want to disappoint my listeners, um, I interrupted you when you were talking about the ceremony with your mom and some of her friends when you were with the red string. Yeah, when I was 13. And I asked you where you were. Then we got into Santa Barbara. But like, can you just finish that story in case there was something that, you know, people want to know? Yeah, so. I was 13. I did a ceremony. It's essentially a, an initiation of initiation into womanhood, an initiation into witchcraft, an initiation into uh, being your own power and authority. And that ultimately gets to what I think witchcraft is really about. You know, witchcraft doesn't have a doctrine like the Bible. It doesn't have a pope. It doesn't have a head figure. In witchcraft, every person who participates is considered a priest or a priestess. Can anybody participate? Yeah. Can I? Yeah, you could. But I could be a witch? Yeah, you could be a witch. I'm going to sign up. <laughs> yeah, you should sign up. It's, it's really fun. And <laughs> do, but, do you ha- I mean, but is there any kind of uh, protocol? Like, can I just start calling myself a witch? Or do you have to go through a certain... In theory, I mean, because there are no rules, right? You know, it's essentially an anarchist practice. Yeah. Uh, you could just say, yeah, I'm a witch. And nobody, you don't have to have somebody say that you are one. Although there are certain sects of witchcraft um, where you have to go through a, a long initiation process. You know, for instance, like the fairy tradition, F-E-R-I. Uh, there's many other traditional forms of witchcraft that you do have to go through a long initiation but you're, but you're an anarchist i'm an anarcho witch i would say <laughs> yeah. yeah because i feel like you know a lot of those practices you know witchcraft really came back into common parlance after the sort of persecution times of the medieval of medieval europe um in 1950s in england and it w- Wait, that's when it reemerged? Yeah, yeah. Into like modern, time, yeah. like 1950s England. Yeah. And what caused that? Um, well, you know, you probably know about the Order of the Golden Dawn, which was a Victorian or, or like late 19th century group in in England that was using like magical practices and practices of the occult. I don't know about that, but yeah. Yeah, since like William Butler Yeats was part of part of this group, like oh. there were a lot of po- poets and art- artists and thinkers of the time period that were um, practicing, like doing ceremonial magic and, practic- and practicing magic. There. Why, why do you yeah. think they were doing that? And why do you think like you do it? And, and and you were just you were talking about this moments ago with regard to people feeling a need, uh, or people having like maybe uh, a lack of spiritual practice or whatever you want to call it in their lives, like that part of their lives, their spirit, however you want to refer to it. Um, they've allowed to atrophy in the service of pursuing, you know, career success or, you know, whatever it is, material success, relationships, sex, blah, blah, blah. And they let that part of their lives atrophy. Mm. Um, is the, you know what I'm saying? Like why turn to this particular thing? Why do you think they were doing this? What was called the order of the golden dawn? Yeah. Like, and why do you think your family got into it? Why did it resonate with you? Because, you know, uh, 
it, it's, it's often the case that we reject the dogma that our parents try to hand to yeah, us. Yeah, I know. did. You did. I did. You yeah. had a, you had a, uh, rebellion against it at some point. Yeah. When I, you know, I was sort of gr- grew up in this practice and was very interested in it throughout my, you know, early, early adolescence and into my late teens. And then I, I just kind of started thinking I was kind of lame. You know, I thought that it was kind of wishful thinking on beha- on behalf of these women, particularly like women in my mother's generation, these um, second wave feminists that, you know, I had a, a sort of rebellion against, which I think is a natural progression as you sort of individuate, you know, and, and become your own person. And I just became way more interested in the arts, you know, and I, I really pursued that. And that kind of became my reason for being in my religion in a way. And then what happened was, I, you know, I, I, I was really interested in dance in particular. And so I went and studied dance and I got my undergraduate degree in dance in, uh, London. And then I came back and went to Cal arts. And by that time, my work had migrated into making films and writing. So kind of an, an all around practice, but I always consider it always about the same stuff around the same themes. But in any case, when I was in grad school, I was making really angry work kind of against the patriarchy against capitalism, you know, against, was it any good? Uh, yeah, I think there, I think I made some powerful, powerful work, but, but it was, it was very much sort of in the spirit of being born against, um, pointing out all the things that I didn't think were right. And there was a real brutality about it, you know? And, um, for instance, I made this piece, uh, where it was like a life-size replica of a peep show booth. And you'd have to go in and witness this work on your own by yourself. And you go in and you watch this video and it's this girl and it's me, but it's a character, right? And she's kind of saying all these very intimate things to you that are kind of lulling you into this idea that you're having a connection with her. But then she ends up kind of doing all these really brutal acts like against herself and sort of in a passive aggressive way against what are you. you like cutting yourself no like making herself choke like doing all sorts of really kind of graphic um and brutal things so um, you sort of like lull people into it and it's like fuck you yeah kind yeah. of well i was really interested in the relationship between desire and horror and our suspension of disbelief specifically in relation to for instance pornography that there's this idea that one might um like, for instance, we know that women who are in pornography are usually coming from, like, abusive backgrounds. You know, I was talking about this with my wife last night because we were, like, flipping channels. And it's like I'm going through, like, the movie channels. And then suddenly it's like, I want to say it was like a documentary where, like, you know, uh, adult film stars were, like, into, like, all this, like, BDSM. Did I just use that acronym right? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> See? I, I know what I'm talking about. And... um they were, you know, it was like talking to the camera and then cutting to, you know, had them having sex or being whipped or choked or whatever. Yeah. And it was like, they were, I don't want to, I don't want to denigrate, but they were like trying to, to intellectualize it mm-hmm. in a way that I found really unconvincing. 
like they were trying to create all this intellectual framework for why it was an interesting practice. And to I'm do just this like, and, I, and, I, and all I wanted to say was like, what happened to you? Right. And like, maybe that's a, maybe that's a bullshit response for me, but like, that's my, I was just like, what happened? Like something happened to you. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I feel you on that, but I also think, okay, like a large percentage of the people in our culture use pornography. Like, let's say, men, like, with men, for instance, oh, yeah. I mean, probably, like, 95% of dudes use it. And pornography isn't... I think, it, I think it's actually really... It has a really uh, negative effect. Oh, yeah. I think, I think it has a really, really, really negative effect. Like, in my experience, you know, most of the men that I've gone out with have been really badly affected by it, and it's caused them a lot of suffering in their well, life. And it also, But it also, like, I think it has uh, created a real uh unrealistic idea of what sex is yeah you know i mean sometimes it can be instructive or at least like help you like think creatively or whatever but like a lot of times like guys go into sexual encounters Mm. with all of this like pornographic uh imagery packed into their heads Mm. and like certain expectations about how it would go or what would please a woman yeah and it's, and it's really, really not the case. <laughs> it's really off, totally. And also, it's well, it's like eating like high fructose corn syrup at every meal, every right. day, right. and then and you eat until you're just eating corn syrup, and then you go to try and taste something kind of subtle and normal, and it tastes like nothing. It tastes like cardboard. It tastes really bland. Or, I mean, I think also like in pornography the woman's role in much of it, you know, in the sort of popular version is, or within like the sex industry, like within, for instance, like table dancing or what, anything like that. The woman's role is to say, you're so great. Like, I love this, whatever you're doing. I love it. Right. You know? And that really sends, <laughs> it, it makes a really, it makes it really difficult to have intimacy because you're expecting that constant confirmation and you're not, you know, and you're not getting it necessarily so what do women in the actual want i know all women are different but like let's try to break this down for guys i think you know this is a really important thing and i'm so glad that you asked me this question because i've been thinking about it a lot because i've been thinking about like all the women the shows that we're seeing by women right now like for instance i love dick or that new show fleabag or that show girls you know the the women in those shows are always having these really unsatisfying sexual encounters with men. Right. Men that they still pursue and still want their attention from, but usually the sexual encounter seems really it's deeply all, unsatisfying. It's all like porn bros. I mean it's very yeah. porny. And they're all and they're always kind of looking at the camera, these girls being like, This kind of sucks. <laughs> like this guy thinks that he's really doing this great thing and he's not. Like yeah. I'm not satisfied. But in the defense of men, I, I should say that like in the act of sex, the woman, you know, for, and listen, I'm not trying to paint a, a picture where the woman is at an advantage in our culture, like writ large. Right. But like in the act of sex, the woman is sort of the evaluator. Hmm. I mean, I guess women feel that they have a performance obligation as well. Yeah. I'm not so sure I agree with you yeah. about that. You know, I think the, the, but to sort of answer your question about like, what do women want? Right. You know, what is, do they want? and I feel like it gets to this idea is... I think women really want intimacy. And what I mean by that is they really want to connect with the person they're having sex with. They really want that person to see them and be there with them and like have a moment of real eroticism and real eroticism is about 
total presence. Right. It's about really being there in that moment with everything that person entails. And for most women, that's really sexy. And I think what happens is, particularly with pornography and why it's such a sort of deleterious um, in, in process of engagement for men, is that it teaches men to completely cut off from what is actually happening. Like, for instance, like as I was saying, the women in pornography aren't probably really enjoying it. Like, you can they're have... in front of lights. They've had to do it a million times. Like The ones who can, can convincingly portray enjoyment are maybe the best actors in the world. Yes. And most of the time they're not. And, and most of the time there's just a suspension of disbelief because we want so badly to think, oh, this woman loves me. She loves my dick. Like everything about me is hot and this is hot and it's a sexy experience. But then the problem is when you go to actual, actually have sex with a real woman, you know, your sort of interaction with her is not that sexy. And here's the thing though. A lot of the time it makes men like unable to perform like in like when they're having sex with a real woman because suddenly there's this other person a human being there and i I, fi- I find that really sad because you know most of the time like women genuinely just really do want to be like they're in bed with that person for a reason you know like they want to be there but then it's really sad and frustrating to to have that encounter be like suddenly the person that you're with and you're you know on a date with, or that you're married to, or, you know, that you're intimately engaged with, you know, that you feel so close to most of the time. And then you start to have sex with them. And it's like, they just short circuit, like they're, they suddenly leap out of the room. It's like this weird disassociation process. Like they're not there anymore. And, and that's got, I mean, I've never met a man. I met a lot of men who had that problem. I've never met a man who found that satisfying for himself. You know, so I think it's really sad that 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 we live in a culture that that pulls us out of our bodies and our experience, our intimate experience with one another, so much. And I feel like witchcraft and and what I'm doing is really about creating a sense of intimacy with with yourself, with yourself, with the world, with other people that you're engaging with, with everything around you. It's How? about removing that disassociation, reunification. Through what? Like what, what, like actual practices? Okay. So, you know, a lot of the, the practices that a witch might use are used, you know, basically in all mystical traditions worldwide. So for instance, um, meditation is really key. So, witches meditate. Witches meditate. I, I meditate, meditate all the time. I'm a witch. <laughs> you are. You, I'm on my way. Yeah, see, we see that you have <laughs> some real witch sympathies. That's here. right. Um, well, so for instance, like one practice that I'm really into right now is a really simple one. So you, anybody could do this, right? So it's a listening practice, and so just when you find yourself um, kind of running your scripts right? You're, you're going about your day and then you're finding yourself kind of pissed off and miserable and ruminating on all sorts of shitty things that are going on or your frustrations or whatever. What's really important in that moment is to break yourself out of that script that you're running, because that's a lack of intimacy that you're having with the world. You're suddenly caught up in your own mind. You're cut off physically from engaging with the true world that's around you. Yeah. You're in the static. Yeah, exactly. You're you're not in 
the presence of the magnificent reality which we're living in. So you, so in this listening practice, you start just by stopping and listening. So you might listen, for instance, to the sounds that are closest to you. You might listen to your own breathing, the, the, this fucking dog next the door, do- <laughs> the dog next door, the fan. And then you expand your consciousness to hear the birds in the trees, the traffic, the train that's going by, the airplane overhead, and like allow your consciousness to extend. The police chopper. The police chopper, because yeah. that's a part of your reality. Yeah. And by doing that, you know, part of that training is allowing you to then listen to something that's even beyond that, the sort of universal hum that reunifies us because it reminds us that we're we're all connected. There's no real division. The only real division is in language. The fact that you and I are even separate beings is really only executed through language, through the way that we define reality. Because if we zoomed out and we saw this room from above, there's no real separation. Right. This is very Buddhist. It's very Buddhist, but it's, it's actually very mystical because... Buddhism in it is a form of mysticism and so is like mystical Christianity or many shamanistic practices or Sufism. You know, they're all speaking about the same thing because ultimately when you have a mystical experience and you encounter the divine, which for witches is reality, is presence, is material manifestation, is what is here. That's where the real magic is. And most of the time we're just cut off from that. We're just separated from that. Because we're locked up in our minds. Because we're locked up in our minds. And that's exactly what gets in the way of eroticism. Because, you know, the the idea of eros is about fundamentally about connection. It's about seeing the relationship between things as opposed to, say, logos, which is about separating things about distinguishing about sort of scientific forms of classification and measurement, which is useful, but it shouldn't be the only way that we operate. And so, you know, when we, when we can listen, like when we can listen with our bodies, like when we can listen with our bodies to our partner and really be with that person, it's so much more rewarding and sexy and extremely hot than it is to sort of be, by yourself with another person kind of masturbating on them or whatever, (laughs) you know, like that's not really very hot. I think a lot of people think it is because they don't know the alternative, but in my opinion, it isn't. So guys, guys out there, you, you need to focus more on your partner, be more present, be more present, be more willing to be, you know, vulnerable and with them. And like, what is this? Make more eye contact. Cause you can creep somebody out too. Yeah. Suddenly just like looking him in the eye. I mean, I, I, I dated this guy once who actually another friend of mine also dated. and So you guys could compare notes? Yeah, we could. We compare notes. Perfect. That's probably something that terrifies men. About <laughs> yes. yes. I, just, I, I just broke out into a cold sweat. But yeah, so he had this thing where he would like stare really deep into your eyes. Think it, but he was trying to do it right. He fucked it up. No, he didn't. Both oh. of us were like, fuck yeah, bring it on. You dude. like that? We liked it. Okay. We did. I mean, I'm not I can't speak for all women. Yeah. But that was pretty hot. Just I have to say. Not even blinking. It just felt really hot to just have him. Like during the act, you. during the act of sex, just like eye contact. Yeah. Okay. That was awesome. All right. I mean, there were a lot of other things about him that were annoying, but you know, he, <laughs> he, he was pretty, it was sexually is doing pretty good. Okay. Yeah. See, that's the thing, though. People can be really good at sex, but then, like, the rest of it's just a disaster. Yeah. 
I mean, and vice we versa. all have our skills. We all have our skills. <laughs> um, so what do you do? Like now, like you're the Oracle of LA. That's my job. Okay. And so you go around, like explain what that entails. Well, so most of the time, you know, I work with clients one-on-one. So they come to me and whatever problem they're working on in their lives, we use magic and all sorts of other means and modalities to sort of approach that and tackle that. And some of it is really straightforward, just like coaching, for instance, Um, some of it is like ceremonial theater or play that allows one to sort of remove the obstacles that prevent them from getting the things that they want. Your play acting. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, it's a kind of liturgy, right? It's like all the, you wearing costumes. I tend to try and look my witchy best okay. when I'm doing my, <laughs> my work. You got to have, yeah, you got to have some witch gear. Yeah. Can't just I mean, show up. I don't always, like sometimes I, I bring it more than other times, but generally I try to, you know, I try got and, some, I feel like this is somewhat, yeah, it's like I mean, casual witch attire. Casual wish, She's yeah. got like a nice necklace with a medallion. What do you call it? Lapis okay. necklace that's got like moon shapes on it. And I've got a quartz crystal. Okay. Um, what does quartz do? Uh, it's just an amplifier of energy. It clarifies and amplifies. And you believe that stuff works? The crystals work? Yes. Or is it just like a talisman or a placebo? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm fine with it either way. Yeah. Does this stuff actually like have a vibration in it or something that... I think that's a really good question. And I think it also... Like, for me, knowing whether or not crystals actually scientifically sort of from an from that kind of perspective have are efficacious is not really my business my business is that be that by working with them i feel like i receive i I achieve results and i achieve the results that i want to achieve so whether or not it's through a placebo effect or whether or not it's through there's actual amplification process with these crystals then um it's like a reminder though at the very at the very least you're like oh i got this crystal it's an amplifier of my energy right so like whatever energy you have it's going to like ratchet it up whether it's positive or negative right but it's also the associations that you have with it and make it be true i mean and like we can think of many many abstractions like that like for instance money is not real you know it's a completely an invention and the there's an object that's associated with money a dollar bill and it only really has any value because we ascribe certain values to it. But that's not to say it doesn't have serious power in the world, right? right? Like right. it has like the most power. Right. So, you know, uh, I think a lot of the things with magic are kind of yes and. There's a sort of ambiguity about them that I'm really, not only am I really comfortable with, but is really an intrinsic and important part of what we're doing because... W- you're using all these tools and implements to sort of reach at something powerful within you, some kind of shift that you're looking for. And uh, all of the sort of theatrical accoutrements of that are what bring you to that place. And I also think, for instance, like you're using like gods and goddesses and spirits and calling them in. And doing a lot of, you know, chanting and incanting and all sorts of things. And, of course, the question from a sort of 
uh, secular humanist, you know, contemporary perspective might be, you know, are those real? Are those gods real? Are you calling in real spirits? Do fairies exist? And yeah, do fairies exist? Yes. <laughs> fairies exist. They do. Fairies absolutely exist. You, have you seen a fairy? Yes. You have? I have seen fairies. Where? I've seen fairies in Scotland. Okay. That's, where, see, that's where they would be. I, I see fairies all the time. Like they're just around. They're just here to be sort of like witnessing. Flying engagement. little like like but here's the thing. Here's the thing though. Okay. Is that, like this goes back to the um, that sort of Harry Potter vision version. Is that, you know, we want the movie version, right? Yeah. Where there's like literally Tinkerbell like sitting there hovering in front of you and you could like hit her out of the way with a baseball bat. I was always kind of attracted to Tinkerbell. She is really sexy. She's hot. I mean, and she's spicy. Yeah. And we like that. <laughs> she's got that. She's got sass. She's, she's got that sass and I'm into it. <laughs> I totally love Tinkerbell too. Um, yeah, but so most of the time when witches are talking about like spiritual entities that they see, like they're doing it in a deep trance state. And so a lot of the time, you know, people would say, well, that's just your imagination. But for which that just your imagination is exactly the wrong way of thinking about it. Every human thing that is in existence, whether it's a Tesla or a cross or money or whatever, is there because of our imagination. We imagined it and we brought it into existence. And we can think of the imagination as a, as a porthole to the spirit realm, as to the realm of consciousness. And all religions in their mystical aspect talk about that realm of consciousness, which is the realm of non-being, non-materiality. And there is clearly a link, right? If we think about our brain, our consciousness, um, you know, how is it that this silicon and carbon that's kind of this wet mush has access to creativity abstract thought like emotion uh memory storytelling narrative you know where is that coming from well you know a lot of traditions including my own would say that it comes from the realm of consciousness the realm of dark matter you might say and that we enter into that space through the imagination and it's through that space through the imagination that everything is connected and that we can um, that we can get information that will be helpful and useful to us. Every night when we go to sleep, we go into that realm a little bit. We go into the realm of the imagination, into the spirit world, and then we come back. And then, you know, when we die, we go in and we don't come back. Right. But so... And you believe when we die, that's it? Um, no, I, uh, I, I don't believe that when we die, that's it. Because of the experiences that I've had doing the shamanic practice that I do, which is where you do deep trance states to go into that spirit world and sort of travel around in there. And because I've done that, and because I've done that in groups with other people where we haven't talked to one another, um, but before the process, but then after the process, we compare notes and have so many similarities. To me, it seems like a good enough evidence to suggest that um, there was some merit to, to what we were doing, that there was... Um, there was a, a deeper level, a deeper level that, that I feel confident, uh, is there is some kind of truth to that. But I also think that it's really important. Like when we're thinking about belief t to, to not ask necessarily whether or not it's true, but whether or not it's useful and, and, and how it's useful and who it's useful to, like, who does it help? 
does it help you? Does it help me to believe that these things are true? And in my life, it's totally transformed my life. Like it's changed my life. It's made my life so much better. And it makes the lives of my clients so much better. To what, to like have a little, like to, to feel that life is a magical um, enterprise? Or yeah. Do you know what I mean? To introduce like that element of it. And I mean, I can kind of see that. I resist magical thinking, if mm-hmm. that's what you want to call well, it. Well, like why? Uh, I'm just, a, I, I like to, I'm skeptical. I think by nature and, uh, I like when I can see proof, mm-hmm. um, I'm loath to believe in things that I don't have like an evidence procedure for. Mm. I have a hard time making that leap. Yeah. But so if you think, I mean, you're a writer, right? Yeah. And so you've found probably a lot of rewards and use, for instance, in literature. Yeah. And that's all made up. Okay. So that's all like from the realm of the imagination. Why do you, why do you feel like literature has merit, but then some sort of other practice that might be, for instance, like going into the spirit world in a shamanic way and like retrieving information isn't that viable. I can, that I can get, I think that I can get, uh, into like where you're like, I mean, like, are you talking about like, like shamanism, like, uh, like peyote trances and sweat lodges and ayahuasca and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, shamanism is basically like the, the sort of basic most fundamental aspect of shamanism is like people who journey into the spirit world in one way or another, whether or not it's through using drumming or it's through spinning like the Sufis do or using ayahuasca or, you know, have you done all of these things? I've never spun. You know, neither have I. I'd be a horrible <laughs> I've done spinner. spinning in like the gym in Hollywood. Yeah, that's right. I spin. And I, I do have mystical experiences. My my dead uncle used to always visit me for some reason. While you're on the bike? Yeah. You know, he my uncle and his husband, um, who are really great and full of life. And for some reason, I would always really feel their presence strongly when I was in spinning class. Weird. I don't know. Were they big cyclists? No. No. No, not at all. I don't no. know why they would always come to See, me. See, but there. you're just like the kind of people. I envy people like this. You can f- feel the presence of your uncle, like your antenna is up. Like, my, I never have any of this shit. Well, maybe you need to do more of these meditation practices that help I you. I meditate every day, but I, I don't. But uh, you do like Zen meditation. Right. Which is very different. I got to spin. Well, because you're not. Well, in Zen meditation, you're trying to cease all thought and just be completely present, which is a great practice. I think it's really useful, but it's not going to like Zen, like the, I used to practice Zen quite a lot and my Roshi wanted us to keep our eyes open. And I think partially so that we don't have visions, like you're not supposed to be having visions. You're not supposed to be indulging in that kind of thinking and fair enough. You know, that's not their practice. But what, I, what kind of meditation are you talking about? This is like getting into trance states and stuff. And yeah. So for instance, a really important, uh, meditation, which I will soon have up on my website. I think I might already have it up there. Um, for which is, is, uh, a grounding meditation where you connect, you know, through your spine and through your roots, like into the earth and, um, pull up the energy of the earth. And you know, you, it takes a long time. Like it takes like six weeks of doing it really diligently before you even understand really why you would do it. Um, but it does really help you. It, it really transforms your life, especially, I think it's a really important practice for women in particular. Men seem to have more access to their power a lot of the time, but a lot of the time for women, like they just don't, they find it really hard to feel like empowered within themselves, within their lives. So doing this grounding practice is really essential for you to, to feel 
like you have a right to be here, to feel like you're connected to everything else, to feel like you're not going to get blown away, to have confidence in who you are and, and your perspective and your experience of the world. And I'm not saying everybody needs to do that, but I'm saying that the people generally who come to me do need to do that. Like that's something that they're really working on in their lives. And that when they do do it, they start to see massive results. Like things change, they get different jobs. They start making more money. They start falling in love. Like they, you know, they are more open to their creative practices and processes. All of those things start happening. And it seems like, why should that happen just from doing this meditation? But it does. Hmm. And it has for me. So you're like a, you're like a shrink witch. Yeah. I mean, like Carl Jung, for instance, um, studied a lot of mysticism and mystical practices and, uh, the first scientists, you know, in the Western world were alchemists and Plato who, and even to a lesser degree, Aristotle, you know, who we base Western philosophy on was extremely mystical. And he was drawing from even more mystical traditions. So, you know, rather than saying like, what I'm doing is like a shrink, I think what shrinks are doing is like what I'm doing, only it's not as aesthetic. Or a shaman. I think shaman is shaman a better word, maybe? Shamanism is like the oldest religion. I feel confident saying that. And it happens like in every tradition, you know, and that's where I see like what I'm doing is part of my, my art practice. You know, art comes out of shamanism. It comes out of this spiritual practice of engagement with the reality around us. And... I feel interested in getting back to that because I feel like art has become so commodified. It's so much just about the sales of the object or putting ourselves within a hierarchy that pleases the hegemonic power system. And I'm not satisfied with that. I feel like, you know, by by making us all feel empowered, all feel connected to source, all feel connected to the greater reality, I feel like it, it inspires us to break the sort of colonization of our minds that it make us think like things have to be a certain way. We have to, like, we have to grow up, we have to get a job, we have to like start, you know, getting 401ks and stuff like that. And all of that stuff is smart to do because we live within this system. But what we don't realize is that we don't have to live within the system. The system only is happening because we all agree to make it happen and we agree to do it because we're afraid that if we don't, if we don't, that we'll die or be left behind. We'll be left behind, you know, that we'll be out in the cold, but like we're really powerful. And if we realize how much agency we have, then maybe things wouldn't be as bad as they are right now. Yeah. Things are dark right now. I feel like they are. How do we like, how do we fight the darkness? Like, you know, cause I think a lot of people are freaking out. Like you were, we were talking, I think before we came on about people panicking, like mm-hmm. genuinely panicking about Donald Trump and how dangerous this all feels naming, like, you know, a climate change denier as the head of the environmental yes. protection agency. Like this is insanity. Yeah. And what I'm wrestling with is on the one hand, uh, the, the panic. And mm-hmm. then the, on the other hand saying, don't panic. And then on the other hand saying, actually panic <laughs> is a proportionate response to what's happening. This yeah. should be very urgent. And it's, I think like yeah. you can, you can lull yourself into the no panic side of the equation as a way of, uh, trying to distance yourself or, you know, put it to the side or not think about it, which, you know, I get you like for the purposes of mental and physical health, you can't spend all of your days spend, you know, obsessing about Trump. 
Yeah. But we do have to engage. Like, what's the, where do we strike a balance on this? And like, how should a person uh, behave? <laughs> you know? I mean, I think it, it fundamentally comes down to, to care, to caring about ourselves, to caring about each other and to creating those alliances with one another, you know, by ourselves in our house, you know, we can do our meditations and feel powerful in that way. But unless we, unless we create powerful allies amongst ourselves, then, you know, our magic's not going to work. We need collective magic in order to, you know, make these shifts happen to bring things back to right again. I think it's also really important you know, to exercise compassion and to notice the people sort of on the fringes of the right that we could try and draw through our compassion and understanding over to the side of reason and and health, health for, you know, ourselves, health for them, health for our, our planet. Yeah, I guess like, you know, yeah. the, the actual metrics of it. Uh, first of all, I want to say like less than half of the country voted. It was like yeah. 47. I, I might be messing up the number, but it's right around half or just less than half of the, um, voting eligible population voted. Yeah. I think I have that number right. But yeah. when you actually parse the numbers, Trump was elected via the electoral college by 20% of the population of this country. So it's a very small or, you know, it's a, it's a relatively small minority of people who put this guy into office. It's not mm -hmm. like the overwhelming majority of citizens. It's like there's this voting plurality that comes up to about 20%. Yeah, well, isn't there some sort of saying within, like, the social scientists, sciences that, like, 10% of the population that feels very radically about something can change the entire yeah. tradition, like, for, for good or bad? That's you know, quite, that's positive in the sense that like if we have people 10 percent of the people really aiming for good things then yeah but yeah i yeah it is. i feel like this is good for business for you though i was saying this to a friend of mine who teaches yoga i'm like business is going to be booming for the next four years yeah stress relief yeah fairies like bring it i need some magic in my life because it's so dark yeah well a lot of the practices that i and other witches like me like if you follow us on instagram or whatever um you'll see a lot about self-care and caring for others and caring for one another and and, 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 and especially also about participation and one especially caring for people who might be uh endangered by this yeah. you know like uh people like, of color yes vulnerable else, you know vulnerable communities gay, lesbian um, like I was thinking, I was listening to an interview with John Stewart or reading an interview with him. Um, and it, well, you know, th th it was, this thought has occurred to me and I have seen it repeatedly, uh, in a variety of places online, but, um, this is the most prominent example. And it was basically like, you know, you got to stay calm. It's not going to help anybody if we're all freaking out at a fever pitch, mm -hmm. but basically like watch carefully what goes on. And especially if they start targeting, vulnerable populations like we should go to them like moths to a flame mm -hmm. and like that's where you can put your action yeah because if people do that like that's something you can con you know concretely do that yeah. will have an impact and that's very necessary because you know if these people are isolated and if nobody acts then things could get i think things could get ugly yeah i think we're already seeing things getting ugly and perhaps this whole thing is just exposing an ugliness that was already there sort of percolating beneath the surface i mean mm -hmm. it certainly seems that you know people of color have been saying you know like we're getting arrested we're getting killed we're getting put into jails like we're being marginalized we're being oppressed and you know just having them say that wasn't enough 
to make people really stand up, you know, to make to have the rest of the population stand up and say, yeah, this is intolerable. And, you know, because we had tolerance for that kind of behavior, you know, things have escalated and gotten worse. And then you elect this guy and it sort of empowers the worst of the worst, I think, to yeah. feel like they're justified in their beliefs and their behaviors. And you see more hate crimes and you see a spike in violence against people. And it's just, it's so disheartening. It really is. And I think, you know, the people who are feeling particularly vulnerable and brokenhearted and just devastated and can't get out of their beds and are finding it hard to cope, like we can't really expect them to sort of pull themselves up by their bootstraps and like be able to know how to deal. But I do think that for those of us who can find a way to cope, then we are obligated to, to try to try and make things better, to try and forge connections and be compassionate, but also to fight hard. Yeah. You, you got to resist. I mean, like I yeah. did a podcast after, uh, like right after the election, I was very shell shocked, but I just turned on the microphone and I talked for like an hour Yeah, and I'm very curious to see. And like, I, I sort of cringe when I have this thought, it's like, I wonder how it's going to age. Cause like I kind of tried to talk over politics. I was reeling, you know, like I think most of us are, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. And, uh, I wonder if I went like, if it, was I too soft? Cause I was talking about like, you know, trying to see things holistically and what you were talking about earlier about bringing people over and like not excluding, listening more to yeah. people who might not have the same perspective that we do. Yeah. Like, I think that is part of the solution, but then there's also like, you know, fuck this. Like we cannot well, the, stand for this. The scariest thing I think is that really what we're talking about is direct action, like putting your body on the line. So for instance, like with the environmental stuff, like, like it, so much of that is becoming such a huge existential threat to, to life as we know it on earth that at what point are we going to say like, no, that, that power plant can't be there and we're going to go tear it down or block it or make it so that people can't go in there. It's like pol the policy is we're going to see, you know, it's already sort of failing to a certain degree, but then now like putting people in the head positions of that, um, you know, the, of the environmental protection agency who are like climate change deniers, it's a farce. It's like, a farce. It's, like it, our petitions on Facebook are not going to right. matter. Right. And I think what's really scary is that like, when you do start doing direct action and you start putting your body on the line, then like you are physically at risk. You know, there's a real genuine threat to your safety and the safety of people that you love and care about. And, you know, I like the idea of democracy that we don't have to do that, you know, but I think that the question now on everybody's mind is like, at what point do we start civil disobedience? Yeah. Civil disobedience, like nonviolent resistance. That's Not, what I'm yeah. all about. You know, yeah. like I think that, uh, you know, if you get enough people together, the problem is that is like, if violence flares up, um, it's very damaging to the, to the cause, because then you can just see how the other side could point at it and be like, look, you know, like it delegitimizes it. Yeah. But then if yeah. people are coming at you with billy clubs, you know, like it just gets very uh, tricky, but I guess that's it is very tricky. And also the thing is like, well, I, I'm not, I don't necessarily think that nonviolence is always like the best way forward, but I do think in this situation it is because 
like there's no way that that our side could hope to win in a in a in a militarized culture like ours like with all the drones and the flash grenades and the you know like water cannons like we can't we can't resist on through violence it wouldn't work but like the thing too is that like especially on climate science we have the winning argument Mm. we have the truth on our side yeah like it's very i mean and i'm I'm basing this on you know like a uh, overwhelming scientific consensus you can see the satellite imagery yeah like i'm i'm not a scientist either but i i believe in science and i'm trusting the experts of the world who are like set have been sounding the alarm bell on this and then i'm also looking at the rest of the uh you know the rest of the world. Right. And like pretty much everybody is like on board with this and recognizes the grave danger. So it's like, it's just an overwhelming amount of evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have, you have that truth on your side. And I, I feel like the majority of people will eventually respond to that. No one's su- people aren't suicidal or maybe they are. Maybe that's what this election was. Like there has been a thought process in my head that like what just happened was, born of a kind of desperation that is not entirely dissimilar to a person committing suicide. Yeah. Like just such despair, such rage, such anger, such hurt that their vision or their thought processes are so clouded over that they take self-destructive action. Yeah. Well, it's kind of a design flaw in the part of human beings that we can only really see like what's immediately in front of us. And when we look for security, you know, that, that, that security in the short term can take primacy over, you know, our long-term health. And I suppose it has to be that way, sort of on an evolutionary level. Like we have to think of the danger right in front of us before we consider the sort of long-term impact. But yeah, I, I read about, um, these people in Canada who were living in the town that like the tar sands, um, like the oil. Yeah, the yeah. fracking things started happening. And they were jobless for like, you know, 10, 20 years. The town really went down the drain and they started to, you know, the the oil companies started to come into the neighborhood and all these environmentalists came in and said, you know, this is going to be really bad for you. Like, you're going to get cancer. It's going to destroy your hometown. And they were like, get the fuck out of here. Like, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. We need these jobs. And they got these jobs. And now, like, they have cancer and their kids have cancer. And and somebody interviewed the guy, this guy who lived there. And they were like, why didn't you, why didn't you believe the people that said that you were going to be really hurt by this? And he just said, you know, I just couldn't. I couldn't believe it because I needed that job. Right. You know, like I needed to be able to put food on the table. And if I believed that, then, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't put food on the table. I would have to find a different solution. I, I think it does get down to fundamentally questions about, you know, belief and how we come to the idea of what is true. And again, I think it comes down to this idea of like, who does our truth benefit? Like who benefits if we believe that climate change is real and who benefits if we don't, it tells us a lot whether or not it's true. Yeah. And the way people arrive at their beliefs, like it's complicated. Like that's something I was saying too. It's like, I resist the notion that people who voted for Trump are like, like they're just idiots or they're just hateful racists. Like that's that oversimplification. Um, 
I think hurts the cause of making a better world, you know, because if you start, if, that, if that's what you start name calling like that, you're never going to reach anybody yes. and bring them over to your side. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I think it's a, it was a foolish thing to do. Yeah. And a lot go. of it was, I mean, it is really hateful and racist, like that we would like sort of sacrifice, put like, put the sanctity of other people up on the altar and say like, oh, you're a worthwhile sacrifice. Like your health and happiness is a worthwhile sacrifice for me. Like that is really hateful, but yeah. But with I've, that vote, I mean, because that argument I've heard too, and it's like, well, it's like you sort of find yourself nodding. But um, I have family members who voted for Trump. I'm sure, who, yes. who I love. Yeah. And it's like I try to reconcile that. You know, it's like I don't know who they are. Like you know, yeah. uh, Trump voters a lot of times don't say that they voted for Trump, um, unless they're in I think quarters where they're with other Trump voters. But like people in my family, because I'm sort of like the you know, I'm more of, I'm probably the most left person in my entire family. Yeah. Um, and maybe like, I don't know, I feel like people wouldn't tell me, but it's like, how do you reconcile that? Yeah. I mean, my, my father is a proud, loud and proud Trump supporter and has many opinions that I feel are just like outrageously wrong and even bordering on evil and genocidal. And he also, you know, is a challenging person to relate to, and yet also has a lot of loving qualities, um, you know. And cast a spell on him. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> don't think I haven't thought about it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think the question that you're asking or sort of posing in a maybe rhetorical sense is like, you know, are people who voted for Trump evil? <laughs> I hope not. I don't think so. I got, I believe people are redeemable. I think there's a lot of pain out there. I think some of them really have a lot of hate yeah. in them. And I think that's, you know, that's the truth in some cases. Like you see video of it. I've seen right. it online a million times and you're like, wow, that's a person filled with rage and misery and suffering. Yeah. And I think it, it comes from not seeing the alternatives. I think so. That's part of like what the work that I do is really about presenting alternatives. Like for instance, like, yeah, a lot of guys, for instance, like think that, you know, misogyny will get them what they want, but what they don't know is what, what they're missing. Like the hot sex that they're missing having by not being able to connect with like a real woman in real space. Like they think they're getting something really great. But they're not. I guarantee you Donald Trump does not look Melania deeply in the no, eye. No, I guarantee you. I mean, <laughs> dude is not having hot sex. Like, he yeah. might think he is, but, like, there's no way. You can look at that guy or any of those guys on the sort of, like, Republican team there, and you're like, no. Like, I don't believe you. a lot of Viagra and hypertension. Exactly. Yeah. Like, come over to our side where things are better, you know? <laughs> like, we, we, like, on our side, we want, we want, like, art, people to take care of one another, we want to have like, you know, sexy experiences. It's like beautiful over here. There's going to be trees, gardens, <laughs> yeah, right? Clean air, clean yeah, water. Yeah, exactly. So, okay. So before I let you go, child care. Um, just so that like, cause I want, I want uh, listeners to have as clear of a picture of what you do as possible. Mm. Um, I, I just finished a novel. Yeah. I'm going Congratulations. out. Thank you. I think I'm going to go out with it uh, next year. I hope if my agent thinks it's ready uh, or ready enough. Um, let's say I came to you as a client yeah. and I said, I have this, Yeah. I want things to go well. Mm -hmm. Can you like, you know, you know, like briefly take us through what you might do with somebody like me? 
Yeah, so... Should I dim the lights? <laughs> do you want me to, like, set the mood? Oh, you want me to actually do it here? No, I can't. I have to have my tools. I don't... I'm not going to, like, take you through a spell. Oh, you're not? Right here. No. You have to have tools? Yeah, it's not like... I. I don't really enjoy just sort of like doing it, like sitting in front of a microphone without like public my incantations. And, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I do. I do public performances, but like I prepare for them for a long time. Right. And, but like on the spot in the grocery store, like you're not going to be like suddenly. Busting yeah, out the I feel crap. like it puts me too much in a position of like trying to prove to you that like what I'm doing is like valuable. Like I, I, and I don't like operating from that position. Like part of part of what I would do if you came to me is like, it's a co-creative practice. So for instance, like we would, we might look at like, we'd probably like look at a bit of tarot cards to like, see what your options are, obstacles that might be facing you, like strengths and, and assets that you have that maybe you weren't aware of. And then we would like call in the spirits, call in spirits that we thought that we think would help you be of service to you. Um, and then we would probably target like three labors or things that you would have to do in order to make your dream come true in this, in this case. So, you know, we, depending on what your obstacles might be. So you would actually have to do physical things in real life. It's not just like you light a candle and your life, you know, is completely transformed. (laughs) Yeah. There goes my dream. Yeah. But no, but, but so, but you would see that through the magical practices that we did, that your that synchronicities start opening up for you, that you might see possibilities that you didn't see before that you might get, um, uh, doors open that maybe weren't there before. But that's also like when you're doing magical practices, you can't sort of aim be like, unrealistically far beyond what you really have like realistic goal of achieving. Like for instance, I'm a witch, you know, I have a, 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 you know, I'm sitting here talking to you about like ways of orgasm or whatever on like public television. I'm never, I'm never going to be like president for instance, like at least not the way the world is. So so if I did a spell to make myself be president, my spell wouldn't work. Right. You know, that's like an unrealistic goal yeah but if for instance like i did a spell to you know get a grant from you know a funding body that i'd been working with already that's like more realistic and there are things that i can do to do that but i might have to do my spells like in incremental steps to get where i want it so you know for instance like if your book is good you know, if you've done your due diligence up into that part then the spell that we do could open the way for you to like um to it's a like, master, get it, it's a masterpiece. Get it into the, the right hands. It's fucking unbelievable. Oh, I've, I can see that. I mean, you're very charming. <laughs> I'm oozing so. with confidence. Yeah, you're oozing confidence. Yeah. brilliant. Yeah, effortless. You know? Yes. So, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think like, well, what do you feel like your biggest obstacles would be? Because that might be something that we would work on. Well, I mean, you know, the thing about it is that at that stage of the process, like once you've got the manuscript where you want it then you hand it off to your agent and you just sort of sit there and wait for the phone to ring. Mm -hmm. So one of my obstacles would be not spending my entire day, like staring at my phone, Mm -hmm. um, dealing with that anxiety of like, you know, is it going to go? Are people going to like it? Or Mm -hmm. is anyone going to pick it up? Like Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Um, dealing with disappointment because inevitably there will be rejections. I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, sometimes books, everybody wants it and they, you know, there's like a bidding war, but like Jade's book. Like who's Jade Chang? Is that just, what, yeah. Is that what happened with yeah, hers? Like oh yeah. Everybody just wanted everybody it. Everybody was like, sign me up for that. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, that, that, I mean, hopefully that would be the case, but, mm-hmm. um, 
you know, that's, I think that's the exception and not the rule. So, you know, just trying to navigate that emotional minefield of powerlessness. Yeah. It's one of my least favorite parts of publishing is when you hand it off. Cause I, there's nothing I can do. Yeah. Right. Nothing I can do. At least when you're writing, you're in control of the, the situation. You can affect the quality of the work, you yeah. know, but once you pass it off, it's out of your hands. Well, so in that case, you might want to do some Jupiterian spells, right? So Jupiter is the planet of expansion and good luck. So you might want to do some work in relation to that. So you'd also want to, for instance, like do work on behalf of Jupiter, so Jupiter, you know, deals with the law, with justice, um, with education. So you might want to like give money to like, uh, educational, uh, organization, for instance, maybe one related to your book. So you'd kind of want to start cultivating and developing that relationship beforehand. And, um, you could also start, you know, like maybe you might engage in, for instance, like, because he does love education, you might like take a class or something, which might enable you to sort of take your mind off of, um, what you're, what you're doing. But yeah, there would be like candles and herbs and like mojo bags and talismans and invocations and, and all of that kind of stuff that it would really depend on. Like if you were really wanting to focus on like dealing with disappointment, or if you want to focus on like getting your book through, in which case, if you were really wanting to focus on getting your book through, you might want to look at specific allies that you, um, you know, you might not know that you have, you might not be aware of. So it might be just like putting in phone calls to, um, everybody who's ever been on this podcast. Yes. <laughs> that would be a pretty effective. Look spell. out. I'm, if you're listening, I'm going to call you soon. Yeah. Well, so a lot of this thing, like, so the magic, for, like, um, you know, it's a saying in magic, like first, first comes the working and then comes the work. So magic is a way of first, you know, you do your magical working so right. that you like understand where you are in position to the obstacles that you have and the opportunities that you have. And then you do the work based on that. So part of what doing the magic does and helps you do is to recognize where you have power and to then utilize that and to then act on that. Um, instead of sort of just sitting around waiting for the phone to ring, because that's not a very empowered position right you know but like the thing is a lot of the things that we do you know it, like a lot of the magical practices are really about getting yourself into a position where you feel empowered where you feel like you have choices because you know you do want to do magical working so that things so that the world goes according to your desire like we want to get our desire we want to have our way we want to get what we want and we can do what we can to make that happen you know, I've done spells, like, for instance, where I was, like, really broke, and then somebody gave me $10,000, like, out of the blue, for instance. Wow. But you don't always get such a clear-cut result as that, you know? Like, a lot of the time, like, you're being called upon to just find, you know, more strength, more power, like, more... Um, like, more clarity about your real purpose or what you're really trying to do. So, like, the thing is, like in terms of writing, like we can't create a world where everything is completely as you want it to be. Cause there's other agents out right. there. Like there's other actors in the field. Yeah. Like there's other powerful magicians right. who are out there doing their own magic. I don't, know, I don't know where my strength is in terms of like, what's my strength level as a magician or as a, an actor in the, on the field? Well, what do you think it is? I don't know. What's what you, you're the witch. What kind of vibe am I giving off? <laughs> I mean, I, 
my sense is that you're quite a powerful actor in the field and that if anything were to be holding you back, it would be your sense of, you know, too many options, like seeing that like things could go so many different ways that you could direct your energy in many different ways, but that like in order for things to really like push forward, like it's the sense that I get off of you is that you have like a sort of strong Martian energy that, you know, which is that, you know, ability to use your aggression towards getting what you want. But if it's dispersed, that's Martian energy like Mars. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, and that's a neutral energy, right? Aggression is a neutral energy. So so it's not like a, a, a dickish aggression. No, not at all. I mean, and a lot of the time though, that's something that can get in our way. So for instance, like if we have an idea about authority or aggression, that it's always something to be avoided and it's something that we don't want to do because we see the way that authorities act in the world around us or aggressive people and so we don't want to take that step then we'll never get anything that we want because you need to have aggression in order to do that but so it's a way of like developing sort of a healthy attitude towards your aggression so for you like it seems like you know you that there could be an aspect of your aggression that's dispersed in many different in down many different roads and pathways that at least for the time that you're really pushing this this book that you would want to really focus and direct your energy in one specific area because i can see that you have a strong ability to manifest your will i mean you've you've done a lot you've accomplished a lot so obviously you have but i have also I've, i've said this before on the show like i have a lot of different things going on i've always spread myself sort of thin with like multiple different creative pursuits. Yeah. You're telling me I should maybe consider focusing. Well, would that be something that you would want to do? I've thought about how much easier it would be like, but you know, I like all the things I do, but I think like I get the deepest rewards from writing. And if I'm like, I'm still, I'm trying to, 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 Hmm. You know, it's, it's like making decisions about what your purpose is or like what you want your purpose to be, like your highest purpose mm-hmm. in terms of what you contribute um, mm-hmm. through the work that you do. Mm-hmm. And I think that writing books is deep work. And I, I think that because of uh, being a reader. Mm-hmm. And so to create that experience or some approximation of that experience as a writer is really meaningful to me, like, you know, as a pursuit and like hopefully as an outcome for whoever picks up the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also really love this, you know, like doing this show because I feel like this is a service to a community of readers and writers and just people who like listening to people talk. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, you know what I'm saying? So like, uh, it's, it's hard for me to choose, but you could also marshal your energy so that for instance, during the time when you are like trying to sell ambitious book, like having people on the show who energetically, advocate for the position that you're taking with your book, for instance, that that could sort of create uh, energetic assistance for you or even for, like having, for instance, like Jupiterian guests on your show. So that, like, what does that mean? Yeah. So if you think about like Jupiter, you know, Jupiter is a planet of like leadership um, of magnanimity, like um, of like largesse. Uh, so if you have guests that sort of like speak to that or, you know, using sort of crafty ways to, um, like make it so that everything in your life is focusing on that specific 
purpose during that time and also doing it with like intention so for instance like you might set up an altar i know that you wouldn't do that but like don't don't you (laughs) never know I might set up an altar in here. Uh, you should. You should set up a book altar. <laughs> I mean, it's a very nice garage, but it's a, it could use a little spice. It's a little. It's a little monochromatic. I think a, an altar right there in front of the TV would be really great. Put it right in front of the flat screen. You could put some pictures of Jupiter or some of your, you know, some of your spiritual heroes. Like, who do you really admire? Thich Nhat Hanh. Okay. Yeah. I mean, interesting choice for getting your book published. I mean, he has published a lot of books. Yeah, he's a great writer. He's a great writer. And he's also very courageous. Yeah. You know, like he was like smuggling kids out of Cambodia or something. Yeah, no, right? to, to me, he's like, to me, he's the genuine article mm-hmm. uh, in a way that few human beings are. And like, I'm, a de- I devour stuff like that. So yeah. I've read through a lot of them, but like, I just find, and I find like when I say he's a great writer, the reason I think he's so great is that he's so, he's so clear and simple. Yeah, he has and, a really clear idea of what he's trying to say. And and he can do it. And a lot of times, um, especially when it comes to spiritual stuff, it's it, it doesn't cut quite so clearly. Uh, it's hard to do. It's hard to even talk about it clearly, let it's alone write about it. It's hard to talk about anything clearly. Yeah. Because it's really hard to have a clear perspective on anything when there's so many different options and alternatives. But I see that as being something that's really essential. So when you do set up your altar, you know, and you have Thich Nhat Hanh, on your altar. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so also, for instance, like when you're working with your agent to write the publicity materials or like you're going down to like, you know, sit down and figure out like, how am I going to pitch this? How am I going to speak to this? Like doing some channeling of his spirit, like does, do you feel like your book is able to communicate in that same effective way? I hope so. I mean, I hope so. He's, he, he factors into the book. He does. So yeah, like uh, you know, it's then very, he it's, would be really good to put on your altar. I'm gonna build. Although I wonder, like, do you think Thich Nhat Hanh would want your book to be published? I hope so. Yeah, but that's not a good enough answer. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I do. I what mean, is I it about your book that you feel like Thich Nhat Hanh would approve of? I think that it's about a person uh, struggling spiritually mm-hmm. um, in an in an honest way, and. I think he would find that relatable. And I think that the, you know, what I'm hoping with the book, I mean, that's not all that the book is, but I'm hoping that, you know, a reader would be able to relate to that. And in seeing this imperfect character struggling in this way would find resonances in their own life and would find value um, and maybe some level of understanding in it. Mm-hmm. And you know what I'm saying? So like, I think that's what he would, that's what he would approve of. It's not like an instructional book. It's not nonfiction, you mm-hmm. know, but it's the story of a person making a genuine attempt uh, in the face of suffering and difficulty and challenge. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a broad way of putting it. But yeah, I think he would, if he, if he were to read it, I think he would approve. And what do you think people connect with? Like, he's a hugely popular Buddhist. Yeah. Right? Or just teacher. Yeah. A teacher. Period. Right. And, and there are many different teachers out there. But why him? Like, why do people resonate with him? What What is it about his message and how he's communicating that? Well, I'll tell you a couple of things. I've thought a lot about this, but like, I want to say he speaks five languages fluently. Mm-hmm. He's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, he was educated at Princeton. So I think that, and I think maybe Columbia, but mm-hmm. he was educated in the West and became fluent in English and acclimated to 
American life in a way that a lot of Buddhist teachers, especially of his era, were not. So he was able to translate. As a translator of the teaching, he's extreme, He's an extremely good student of it, mm-hmm. and he's also gleaned from it um, the, the very best of it, like the very best essences of it, and he's boiled that down into simple instructions that anybody can process. So I think his facility with language is a big part of it. I think the other thing is that he truly was called to be a monk when he was like 16. Mm. And he went to the monastery when he was 16 years old and he lived it from a very young age. So it's authentic in that way. He had good teachers, obviously. He also lived through the Vietnam war. So he's experienced extreme suffering. He's been witness to extreme suffering. He's had his life threatened. He's been in very dangerous situations. He's had friends of his die by the dozens. You know what I'm saying? So like, He's been in exile. He was in exile for 40 years, just like the, you know, much like the Dalai Lama has been in exile, but maybe to an even greater extent, he's seen real strife. Mm. And I think that when a person comes through that level of intense suffering and has that good of a brain and that kind of facility with language and stays committed to the practice and not just living the practice in a cave up in the hills, but actually down in the weeds with the people trying to alleviate suffering. He calls it engaged Buddhism. Mm -hmm. You know, um, there's an authenticity to it Mm -hmm. that I think is what resonates with people. There's Mm -hmm. a, it's the clarity and simplicity and authenticity and just this real sense that he lives it and that there's not, there's no angle, you know, he's not, he's not going to try to sell you a used car. Um, you're not going to find out like, I hope, I hope not, but you're not going to find out that like he was sexually molesting nuns at the monastery or, you know, a lot of times you hear this stuff with, yes, pe- with, with people who ascend to guru status or whatever. There's a lot of corruption because there's a lot of power yeah. in that station. And uh, I don't I don't get any of that from him. Well, what's amazing when you talk about him is like how activated you become and like how energized and how clearly you're able to speak about his work and the things that inspire you about his work. And I feel like if you utilize that same voice and pitching your own work, you know, if you are able to have the same kind of conviction in putting your own work forward as you are putting forward the work of Thich Nhat Hanh, that people will be... He's easy to sell. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it's about cultivating, you know, so your process of this the spell that you're going to do when you go to sell your work would be about getting yourself into a place energetically where you are able to speak about your work in the same way and with the same conviction, with the same deep knowledge of its authenticity and helpfulness that you can speak about Thich Nhat Hanh. And so that might be a process that you would do over a month that then you're energetically resonating on that level that would open up for more possibilities, um, of success to come through. Now, I'm not saying it's a 100% chance that you will then sell your book for like a, you know, if this thing doesn't sell, I'm going to call you up. What the fuck? (laughs) Well, Jupiter, Jupiter failed me. Yeah. Well, so, (laughs) you know, we'd always have options, more options after that. And a lot of, you know, time to go to Neptune. Well, yeah. Probably not Neptune, but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, so the thing is, like, we don't always get everything that we want in life. That's right. And sometimes, you know, w- later we can see 
you know, the benefit of that, you know, like we can think of breakups that we've had where, you know, we really wanted to be with that person and then we weren't. And, you know, then we look back and we think, well, it's actually better now because blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, things like, for instance, like I was just writing about this on my blog about, you know, when I was younger, I really wanted to be a dancer and me too. um, Yeah, you did. Why are you laughing? (laughs) What's so funny about that? Well, because it's hard for me to (laughs) imagine that. I didn't want to be a dancer. Um, yeah. yeah, so I really wanted to be a dancer and, um, you know, I, I didn't, I couldn't do it. Like I, for a variety of reasons, like I did not succeed in that venture and it was really devastating. It's not a good enough dancer, like not enough, like natural talent or, um, yeah, I think there were a couple different things going on. I mean, in some ways I was very talented as a dancer and I had a really lovely quality, but, um, and I was really strong, but I, I was also kind of a nervous wreck when I was younger and, um, it was hard for me to, for instance, like pick up combinations really quickly. Like I'm dyslexic. So like when I look in the mirror, like often when you're learning a dance combination, you're kind of learning it backwards and in the mirror. And some people just have an innate ability to pick up combinations really quickly. But if you can't pick them up really quickly, then you can't, like you can't, you won't audition well, for instance. Well, it's a physical thing. It's like a sport, you know, like there's a brutal culling that happens in those sorts of pursuits. Yeah. You know, like I've, like you were saying earlier, like if you wanted to, uh, cast a spell to become, you know, the next astronaut or whatever, it's probably not going to happen. If I said I yeah. wanted to play for the Lakers, yeah, it's not going to happen. Certain, yeah. I mean, the thing is though, like there's a lot of ways to dance still, like just because like I can't be, you know, I also started late, like there are all sorts of things, but just because like I didn't get to have what I wanted doesn't mean that I don't get to dance anymore. Yeah, of course Like, not. But so, you know, of course we always want to have what we want in exactly the way that we want it. Um, but you know, my not achieving what I wanted as a dancer also led me into some really interesting places. And now I'm really grateful to be where I'm at and I feel like very rewarded by my work. And, um, and I also feel like some of that, you know, failure that really wanting something and not getting it, that kind of continuous heartbreak that I had over and over and over again throughout my late teens and early twenties and even into my thirties, I felt like has made me a much more compassionate person. Right. And that compassion, I feel like really helps me in the work that I do. And I don't think I could have gotten there if I just got everything I wanted, you know, just easily, if it all just came really easily to me. And I'm not saying that that's like, uh, like, yes, it would be amazing if everything that I've ever wanted just came to me, but that's not the way that it's happened. And I think more important than getting what you want is feeling at peace with where you're at and feeling excited and energized and empowered to live each moment as it's coming to you. Because the thing is too, like, as we, you know, just to sort of circle back to the, you know, that writer party you know, the, where all those successful writers were like, they all got what they wanted and it wasn't enough. Right. You know, it's never enough. It's never enough. Yeah. And like, of course it would have been extremely satisfying to be like the best dancer on earth. Um, and maybe that would have been enough for me. You know, I think a lot of people, like if we ask Donald Trump, for instance, like, is it enough for you no that way. you are president no. and that you are so wealthy? That's and that a bottomless you, hole. Yeah. There's just, ne- it's never going to be enough. So, I mean, magic is, I feel like magic can increase the likelihood of you getting what you want, 
but it, it can't say with 100% certainty that you will get it. But more important than that, magic makes you feel empowered and strong and have agency to feel like you, like this world is your playground, like, you, like, like to feel completely engaged with the world around you in a creative way that feels expi- inspiring and energizing. And to me, that's what's more important than just like, you know, that all your problems are solved because problems are like a, a bottomless That's right. Pit. Yeah. Cause like then once the book sells, then it's like, Oh shit, is it good? Then are people going to buy it? Yeah. How are the reviews going to be? Yeah. You know? And then like you get into that whole thing and then, or, yeah. Or like you, so let's say you sell your book for like a, a very, you know, respectable, like let's say you sold it for like a hundred thousand dollars and then you had a friend who sold their book for $600,000 and then you had a friend who sold their book for $20,000 and then you're like ranking yourself in relation to that, you know, like, and then exactly like, you know, who buys it? Is it going to be option? Like all of this stuff, it's just an, an unending cycle, you know, that you kind of keep having to do magical ceremonies for it's good for your business <laughs> it is. there's always something more that we want but more importantly it's really about like whether or not you sell your book it's about how excited you feel to continue doing the work that you're doing yeah i feel excited i hope i can continue to do it you know i got a lot of things to balance but um do you have a coven so witches have a coven? coven a coven yeah <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I teach a monthly mystery school, um, that sort of functions as my coven. Is it just Um, women? Mostly it is women. Okay. I I can't show up. No guys come. No, they do. Guys come all the time. Yeah. But you know, it is mostly women. I have to say, um, and I, I have a like pretty extensive witch community here in Los Angeles. There's uh, a lot of witches in LA. It's a city of witches oh and oracles God. and mystics. Absolutely. Yeah. But it always has been it since all, the beginning, right? I do like that. Like, cause it is, it, it is a new age, whatever you want, you know, for lack of a better term, spiritual laboratory. Yeah. And I love that. I love it too. And I love, you know, one of the things that's really exciting about witchcraft today is that it's drawing from all these different traditions. So yeah, it's drawing from the sort of like tradition of, you know, classical Alexandrian and Gardnerian witchcraft from England, but it's also drawing on like shamanistic practices and indigenous practices and, uh, like practices from like Scandinavia and popular culture. And, um, I bet you Iceland has a lot of witches. Right? Oh yeah. Because Bjork, like, yeah, she's like well, supreme they, like, witch. They, like you have to, I don't know if this is true, but I've heard that you have to like check in with the fairies before you build anywhere. Exactly. Yeah. See? And that's I awesome. Didn't, I didn't even know that. I just instinctively knew. Yeah. So a lot of those fairies. Right. Well, paganism is their national religion is well, one of them. See? There we go. Yeah. You got to go to Iceland. I would love to go to Iceland. Um, I've heard it's really expensive. I don't know. I, you know, I'd have to look at the exchange rate. Yeah. I mean, I did live in Northern Europe and um, I loved it. Where? I, I lived for nine months in the Netherlands and then I lived in London for six years, okay. which is not exactly Northern Europe, but the Netherlands was fucking cold. Were you in Amsterdam? I was. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful town. I loved it. It's great. It was amazing. Did you ride a bike around and all that? I thing? rode a bike all over the place. Smoked a bunch of weed? I mean, I worked in a hash bar, uh-huh. but I'm not a big pot smoker. So yeah. I only worked there because that was the only job that I could get Okay. Um, as a foreigner, you know? Yeah. And uh, it was like a Rastafarian hash bar where 
half the clients were uh, basically like drug dealers who sold drugs on the street from Suriname, which is a, was a former Dutch colony. And then like European and American tourists who would come in and try and get like as high as possible in the shortest <laughs> amount of time. I was one of those guys yeah. once. <laughs> but once. the, the Surinamese which drug was the, dealers what was the name were... Of the, what was the name of the hash bar you worked at? It, it, there were two... It, it was owned by the same guy and there were two locations. One of them was called the Audekirk, which is the old church. And that was the name of the street that it was on, Old uh-huh. Church Street. And then the other one was called Rasta Baby. Rasta and it Baby. was down by the sort of central station and so whenever i would walk down the street and like the drug dealer guys who knew me would always say hey rasta baby <laughs> it was really cute <laughs> i think i went to a one called the gray area oh yeah i mean probably it had like i mean this is in the 90s so yeah, probably it had like aliens painted on the walls and like black lights and like are you talking about the techno. gray area or are you talking about the Rasta baby? I'm talking about all of the oh, places. Yeah. No, they Rasta baby vibe, had Rastafarian stuff. The vibe, I never, I didn't, to be quite honest, I, I, actually the gray area was just a small hole in the wall and there were like pictures of like Woody Harrelson and Willie Nelson on the wall. Like they had famous right. people, you know, the, photos. People who love pot. <laughs> yeah. But who had come there. Right. Oh, you know? okay. Um, and it was relatively, you know, uh, decent vibe. But like sometimes like you'd walk into some of those bars and it would be like, Everyone just looks like they're just like out to lunch and yeah, you know, it's not that, it's not a happy vibe. Yeah. I mean, I feel like marijuana is, well, I see it, you know, all, all, all plants is like plant medicines, you know, and in shamanic practice, you know, all plant medicines, plants are considered middle world, world spirits. So they're all spirits of this, this realm rather than the upper world or the lower world. And so as middle world spirits, they all have an agenda. What What is pot's agenda? Well, pot's agenda is it to further its own interests, just like every other middle world spirit. And, you know, it also has a lot of teaching and a lot of wisdom, but it's also been, you know, a p- part of the pot spirit or the marijuana spirit. I feel like it's been corrupted by all of its, the way that human beings have like manipulated it. So for instance, like it's all genetically modified, like purple super skunk with crystals on it or whatever. <laughs> right. And I don't feel like that's the sort of same, we're not engaging with the same spirit as, you know, it's like Frankenstein weed. Yeah. Or, t- or, or tobacco, you know, for instance, like native Americans use tobacco as like a sacred, uh, herb to create peace. And I still feel like tobacco has a lot of wisdom for us, but it also is used you know, and manipulated and covered in tar and coated with chemicals. And like it was Im- involved in like the slave trade and all these things were sort of filtered through and affect the way that we experience the medicine of this plant. Or when we say medicine, like what we're saying is like the spirit of that plant is right. then like very much informed by that. Like if we had gone through all those processes, which we do get influenced and informed and squished and squashed and manipulated, you know, then we end up being, you know, having an agenda that maybe isn't in the best interests of the greatest good for all concerned. And I think that's true, you know, so you're saying smoke, smoke like organic pot that you grow yourself. Yeah. I mean, I, at this point in my life just think that when you use medicinal plants, like it should be in a ceremonial way. If you, if what you're wanting is to really like learn from and have a dialogue with that plant, then it should be in a way of ceremony. Or, I mean, if you're just doing it to like chill out, whatever, that's your business and go ahead and do it. 
But um, I think a lot of the time, though, if you develop a relationship that's, you know, extremely intimate with a plant, then you run the risk of harming other relationships that you have, like your relationship to your work or your relationship to your partner. Right. When people are just like chronically smoking weed, it it isolates you. you. Yeah. You know, so like you, and that's because you have a, you know, in the way that I think of it, it's because you have, you have like a, you're, you're like lovers with this plant and it makes it so that you can't really connect to other things. You're so obsessed in, yeah. in this sort of obsessive codependent relationship with the spirit. I, like when I was in college, uh, which was when I smoked like the most in my pot, I, I remember being like coming to the realization. I was like, this is like selfish time. Mm-hmm. Like it felt like selfish time because everybody would sort of zone. Even when you were with other people, if everybody yeah. was smoking pot, they'd sort of like zone out on their own. Mm-hmm. You just, the, the dialogue seemed to be hampered. Sometimes it was good. Yeah. Sometimes you can get into like a really funny, creative dialogue that you're just like laughing until you cry. That's the best. Yeah. But a lot of times I felt like it actually made people isolated and like cocooned in their own heads. Um, and, and, and it also, I think incentivizes or not incentivizes, but causes like antisocial impulses to maybe rise up where you're like, I don't want to go out. Yeah. I'll just stay in. Yeah, totally. Eat this cereal, you know, and watch TV. Well, pot's been very successful as an organism, right? Like, I don't know where it originally came from, but now it's everywhere. It's spread all over the world. You know, just like corn has also been a very successful organism. Like, whatever its gene is doing. If I can be as successful as corn. (laughs) Then you would rule the world. (laughs) My life would be. (laughs) Maybe you need to have corn on your altar. (laughs) Corn and Thich Nhat Hanh. Yeah. And like a... Big, and a few hemp seeds and some hemp seeds, you know, some uh, organic hemp seeds. <laughs> Sounds uh, like you've got the makings of a great altar. <laughs> well, I couldn't have done it without you. I have so enjoyed uh, talking with Thank you. Thank you. It's been great. I've to been be hearing you. You're not like multiple guests on the show have told me about you either on the air or off the air, and I'm glad to finally meet you. Uh, and I wish you well. Thank you. I'm really grateful to be here and to be a part of your, you know, celebrity clientele. <laughs> of course. So, <laughs> yeah. And I wish you luck with your book. And if you do want um, a spell, you know, come and I'll give you one, you know, on the house. Okay. Well, so, thank you very much. It. All right. <laughs> All right, folks. There you go. That's the show. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support it, you can do so over at patreon.com slash other people pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Make a monthly donation, support the show, help it continue to flourish. That was Amanda Yates Garcia, the Oracle of Los Angeles. You can find her online at oracleoflosangeles.com. She's on Twitter at Amanda Yates G. She's on Facebook. She's on Instagram. She's on Pinterest. She's all over the place. A little bit of a change up. Never hurts. I really enjoyed that. I hope you're having a good holiday season. If you're not having a good holiday season, I hope that made it a little better. I finished my Christmas shopping. Got that done. I think I did well this year. I feel like I got things that people need yet will also like. Do you know what I'm saying?
So, trying to think. I'm going to try to get the holiday episode up. I have, the, the problem is that I have like three hours almost of tape to deal with, of varying sound quality with multiple voices. Everybody is inebriated, and it's trying to cut something together that, you know, is enjoyable to listen to, is semi-coherent. It's a heavy lift in terms of uh, man hours. Maybe more than I uh, anticipated. Brought it on myself. This is Vince Guaraldi, by the way. The music today, other than the theme song music, all pro uh, provided by Vince Guaraldi, the uh, great jazz musician from San Francisco. He's the guy who wrote the, the Peanuts theme song. You know Vince Guaraldi. It's one of my favorite Christmas albums. Go get it. I wish I could play the piano like this. Life would be better. What do I want for Christmas? How about a different president? <laughs> Can we have a do-over? Can we have a do-over for Christmas? Trying to stay positive in 2017, even though, in spite of. Courage, dark humor, and, uh, you know, fighting spirit. I've been reading a lot. That's been nice. Do I do this every year in December? I feel like I ingest media at an accelerated rate right around like December, January. I get hungry for that. I need to see some movies. I haven't seen the uh, new Star Wars movies or Star Wars movie. Um, it's getting mixed reviews from people I know. Love, hate. And people kept telling me to, to watch uh, this new show, The OA. I tried to watch it. I couldn't even, I couldn't even uh, access it. I watched like two, two uh, episodes and just checked out. Just my personal taste. Did not reach me. I'll tell you a show that I have been enjoying, though, is uh, Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia on Vice. It's like this really like emaciated millennial science geek who's deep into chemistry and uh, pharmacology, and he just travels the world ingesting chemicals in like a nerdy way. There's also this documentary show on like Nat Geo about this guy named Mick Dodge who has lived in the uh, wilds of Washington State for 20 years. I'm always fascinated by people who live off the grid. I harbor secret dreams of that, though I don't think I could ever do it. I remember seeing that movie Nell, starring Jodie Foster, years ago, thinking it was a masterpiece. <laughs> uh, I think that's why I hiked the Appalachian Trail. And then I got out there and I was like, oh shit. Getting rained on. I'm filthy. Are you traveling? I'm always curious as to where people are listening to this. Maybe you're in transit, maybe you're inert. 
wherever you are. Happy holidays. I'll be back soon. And uh, I think I'll have another show before the New Year's up. We'll see. Basically just waiting for this song to end. All right, there it is. (laughs) 